Section 19 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 19. Book 18. Chapter 8. Maxims of the Ancients on Agriculture. In what way, then, can land be most profitably cultivated? Why, in the words of our agricultural oracles, by making good out of bad. But here it is only right that we should say a word in justification of our forefathers, who, in their precepts on this subject, had nothing else in view but the benefit of mankind. For when they use the term bad here, they only mean to say that which costs the smallest amount of money, the principal object with them was, in all cases, to cut down expenses to the lowest possible sum, and it was in this spirit that they made the enactments which pronounced it criminal for a person who had enjoyed a triumph to be in possession, among his other furniture, of ten pounds weight of silver plate, which permitted a man, upon the death of his farm steward, to abandon all his victories, and return to the cultivation of his lands, such being the men the culture of whose farms the state used to take upon itself. And thus, while they led our armies, did the Senate act as their steward. It was in the same spirit, too, that those oracles of ours have given utterance to these other precepts, to the effect that he is a bad agriculturist who has to buy what his farm might have supplied him with, that the man is a bad manager who does in the daytime what he might have done in the night, except, indeed, when the state of the weather does not allow it, that he is a worse manager still who does on a workday what he might have done on a feast day, but that he is the very worst of all who works under cover in fine weather instead of laboring in the fields. I cannot refrain from taking the present opportunity of quoting one illustration afforded us by ancient times from which it will be found that it was the usage in those days to bring before the people even questions connected with the various methods employed in agriculture, and will be seen in what way men were accustomed to speak out in their own defense. Gaius Furius Cresimus, a freedman, having found himself able, from a very small piece of land, to raise far more abundant harvests than his neighbors could, from the largest farms, became the object of very considerable jealousy among them, and was accordingly accused of enticing away the crops of others by the practice of sorcery. Upon this, a day was named by Spurius Calvinus, the curule edile, for his appearance. Apprehensive of being condemned, when the question came to be put to the vote among the tribes, he had all his implements of husbandry brought into the forum, together with his farm servants, robust, well-conditioned, and well-clad people, Paiso says. The iron tools were of first-rate quality, the mattocks were stout and strong, the plowshares ponderous and substantial, and the oxen sleek and in prime condition. When all this had been done, here, Roman citizens, said he, are my implements of magic, but it is impossible for me to exhibit to your view, or to bring into this forum, those midnight toils of mine, those early watchings, those sweats, and those fatigues.
Upon this, by the unanimous voice of the people, he was immediately acquitted. Agriculture, in fact, depends upon the expenditure of labor and exertion, and hence it is that the ancients were in the habit of saying that it is the eye of the master that does more toward fertilizing a field than anything else. We shall give the rest of these precepts in their appropriate places, according as we find them adapted to each variety of cultivation. But in the meantime, we must not omit some of a general nature, which here recur to our recollection, and more particularly that maxim of Cato, as profitable as it is humane. Always act in such a way as to secure the love of your neighbors. He then proceeds to state his reasons for giving this advice, but it appears to me that no one surely can entertain the slightest doubt upon the subject. One of the very first recommendations that he gives is to take every care that the farm servants are kept in good condition. It is a maxim universally agreed upon in agriculture, that nothing must be done too late, and again, that everything must be done at its proper season. While there is a third precept, which reminds us that opportunities lost can never be regained. The male diction, uttered by Cato against rotten ground, has been treated of at some length already. But there is another precept, which he is never tired of repeating. Whatever can be done by the help of the ass will cost the least money. Fern will be sure to die at the end of a couple of years, if you prevent it from putting forth leaves. The most efficient method of ensuring this is to beat the branches with a stick while they are in bud, for then the juices that drop from it will kill the roots. It is said, too, that fern will not spring up again if it is pulled up by the roots about the turn of the summer solstice, or if the stalks are cut with the edge of a reed, or if it is turned up with a plowshare with a reed placed upon it. In the same way, too, we are told that reeds may be effectually ploughed up if care is taken to place a stalk of fern upon the share. A field infested with rushes should be turned up with the spade, or, if the locality is stony, with a two-pronged mattock. Overgrown shrubs are best removed by fire. Where ground is too moist, it is an advantageous plan to cut trenches in it and so drain it. Where the soil is cretaceous, these trenches should be left open, and where it is loose, they should be strengthened, with a hedge to prevent them from falling in. When these drains are made on a declivity, they should have a layer of gutter tiles at the bottom, or else house tiles with the face upwards. In some cases, too, they should be covered with earth, and made to run into others of a larger size and wider. The bottom also should, if possible, have a coating of stones or of gravel. The openings, too, should be strengthened with two stones placed on either side, and another laid upon the top. Democritus has described a method of rooting up a forest, by first macerating the flower of the lupin for one day in the juice of hemlock, and then watering the roots of the trees with it. Chapter 9. The Different Kinds of Grain As the field is now prepared, we shall proceed to speak of the nature of the various kinds of grain, we must premise, however, that there are two principal classes of grain, the cereals, comprising wheat and barley, and the legumina, such as the bean and the chickpea, for instance. The difference between these two classes is too well known to require any further description. Chapter 10. The History of the Various Kinds of Grain. 
the cereals are divided again into the same number of varieties according to the time of the year at which they are sown the winter grains are those which are put in the ground about the setting of the virgiliae and they receive their nutriment throughout the winter for instance wheat spelt and barley the summer grains are those which are sown in summer before the rising of the virgiliae such as millet panic sesame horminum and irio in accordance however with the usage of italy only for in greece and asia all the grains are sown just after the setting of the virgiliae there are some again that are sown at either season in italy and others at a third period or in other words in the spring some authors give the name of spring grain to millet panic lentils chickpea and alica while they call wheat barley beans turnips and rape cementive or early sowing seeds certain species of wheat are only sown to make fodder for cattle and are known by the name of farrago or mixed grain the same too with the leguminous plants the vetch for instance the lupin however is grown in common as food for both cattle and man all the leguminous plants with the exception of the bean have a single root hard and tough like wood and destitute of numerous ramifications the chickpea has the deepest root of all corn has numerous fibrous roots but no ramifications barley makes its appearance above ground the seventh day after sowing the leguminous plants on the fourth or at the very latest the seventh the bean from the fifteenth day to the twentieth though in egypt the leguminous plants appear as early as the third day after they are sown in barley one extremity of the grain throws out the root and the other the blade this last flowers too before the other grain in the cereals in general it is the thicker end of the seed that throws out the root the thinner end the blossom while in the other seeds both root and blossom issue from the same part during the winter corn is in the blade but in the spring winter corn throws out a tall stem as for millet and panic they grow with a jointed and grooved stalk while sesame has a stem resembling that of fennel giant the fruit of all these seeds is either contained in an ear as in wheat and barley for instance and protected from the attacks of birds and small animals by a prickly beard bristling like so many palisades or else it is enclosed in pods as in the leguminous plants or in capsules as in sesame and the poppy millet and panic can only be said to belong to the grower and the small birds in common as they have nothing but a thin membrane to cover them without the slightest protection panic receives that name from the panicule or down that is to be seen upon it the head of it droops languidly and the stalk tapers gradually in thickness being of almost the toughness and consistency of wood the head is loaded with grain closely packed there being a tuft upon the top nearly a foot in length in millet the husks which embrace the grain bend downward with a wavy tuft upon the edge there are several varieties of panic the memos for instance the ears of which are in clusters with small edgings of down the head of the plant being double it is distinguished also according to the color the white for instance the black the red and the purple even several kinds of bread are made from millet 
but very little from panic. There is no grain known that weighs heavier than millet, and which swells more in baking. A modius of millet will yield sixty pounds weight of bread, and three sextarii steeped in water will make one modius of fermenty. A kind of millet has been introduced from India into Italy within the last ten years, of a swarthy color, large grain, and a stalk like that of the reed. This stalk springs up to the height of seven feet, and has tufts of a remarkable size, known by the name of Fobe. This is the most prolific of all the cereals, for from a single grain no less than three sextarii are produced. It requires, however, to be sown in a humid soil. Some kinds of corn begin to form the ear at the third joint, and others at the fourth, though at its first formation the ear remains still concealed. Wheat, however, has four articulations, spelt six, and barley eight. In the case of these last, the ear does not begin to form before the number of joints, as above mentioned, is complete. Within four or five days, at the very latest, after the ear has given signs of forming, the plant begins to flower, and, in the course of as many days or a little more, sheds its blossom. Barley blossoms at the end of seven days, at the very latest. Varro says that the grains are perfectly formed at the end of four times nine days from their flowering, and are ready for cutting at the ninth month. The bean, again, first appears in leaf, and then throws out a stalk, which has no articulations upon it. The other leguminous plants have a tough, ligneous stalk, and some of them throw out branches, the chickpea, the fitch, and the lentil, for instance. In some of the leguminous plants, the pea, for example, the stem creeps along the ground, if care is not taken to support it by sticks. If this precaution is omitted, the quality is deteriorated. The bean and the lupin are the only ones among the leguminous plants that have a single stem. In all the others, the stem throws out branches, being of a ligneous nature, very thin, and in all cases hollow. Some of these plants throw out the leaves from the root, others at the top. Wheat, barley, and the vetch, all the plants, in fact, which produce straw, have a single leaf only at the summit. In barley, however, this leaf is rough, while in the others it is smooth. In the bean, again, the chickpea and the pea, the leaves are numerous and divided. In corn, the leaf is similar to that of the reed, while in the bean it is round, as also in a great proportion of the leguminous plants. In the ervilia and the pea, the leaf is long, in the kidney bean, veined, and in sesame and irio, the color of blood. The lupin and the poppy are the only ones among these plants that lose their leaves. The leguminous plants remain a longer time in flower, the fitch and the chickpea more particularly, but the bean is in blossom the longest of them all, for the flower remains on it forty days. Not, indeed, that each stalk retains its blossom for all that length of time, but, as the flower goes off in one, it comes on in another. In the bean, too, the crop is not ripe all at once, as is the case with corn, for the pods make their appearance at different times, at the lowest parts first, the blossom mounting upwards by degrees. When the blossom is off in corn, the stalk gradually thickens, and it ripens within forty days at the most. The same is the case, too, with the bean, 
but the chickpea takes a much shorter time to ripen. Indeed, it is fit for gathering within forty days from the time that it is sown. Millet, panic, sesame, and all the summer grains are ripe within forty days after blossoming, with considerable variations, of course, in reference to soil and weather. Thus, in Egypt, we find barley cut at the end of six months, and wheat at the end of seven from the time of sowing. In Hellas, again, barley is cut in the seventh month, and in Peloponnesus in the eighth, the wheat being got in at a still later period. Those grains which grow on a stalk of straw are enclosed in an envelope protected by a prickly beard, while in the bean and the leguminous plants in general they are enclosed in pods upon branches which shoot alternately from either side. The cereals are the best able to withstand the winter, but the leguminous plants afford the most substantial food. In wheat the grain has several coats, but in barley, more particularly, it is naked and exposed. The same too with arinia, but most of all the oat. The stem is taller in wheat than it is in barley, but the ear is more bearded in the last. Wheat, barley, and winter wheat are threshed out. They are cleaned, too, for sowing, just as they are prepared for the mill, there being no necessity for parching them. Spelt, on the other hand, millet and panic, cannot be cleaned without parching them. Hence it is that they are always sown raw and with the chaff on. Spelt is preserved in the husk, too, for sowing, and, of course, is not, in such case, parched by the action of fire. Chapter 11. Spelt Of all these grains, barley is the lightest, its weight rarely exceeding fifteen pounds to the modius, while that of the bean is twenty-two. Spelt is much heavier than the barley, and wheat heavier than spelt. In Egypt they make a meal of olera, a third variety of corn, that grows there. The Gauls have also a kind of spelt peculiar to that country. They give the name of brace, while to us it is known as sandala. It has a grain of remarkable whiteness. Another difference, again, is the fact that it yields nearly four pounds more of bread to the modius than any other kind of spelt. Various states that for three hundred years the Romans made use of no other meal than that of corn. Chapter 12. Wheat There are numerous kinds of wheat, which have received their names from the countries where they were first produced. For my part, however, I can compare no kind of wheat to that of Italy, either for whiteness or weight, qualities for which it is more particularly distinguished. Indeed, it is only with the produce of the more mountainous parts of Italy that the foreign wheats can be put in comparison. Among these, the wheat of Boeotia occupies the first rank, that of Sicily the second, and that of Africa the third. The wheats of Thrace, Syria, and more recently of Egypt, used to hold a third rank for weight, these facts having been ascertained through the medium of the athletes, whose powers of consumption, equal to those of beasts of burden, have established degradations in weight, as already stated. Greece, too, held the Pontic wheat in high esteem, but this has not reached Italy as yet. Of all the varieties of grain, however, the Greeks gave the preference to the kinds called Dracontian, Strangia, and Selenusium, the chief characteristic of which is a stem of remarkable thickness. It was this, in the opinion of the Greeks, that marked them as the peculiar growth of a rich soil. On the other hand, they recommended for sowing in humid soils an extremely light and diminutive species of grain, 
with a remarkably thin stalk, known to them as speudias, and standing in need of an abundance of nutriment. Such, at all events, were the opinions generally entertained in the reign of Alexander the Great, at a time when Greece was at the height of her glory, and the most powerful country in the world. Still, however, nearly one hundred and forty-four years before the death of that prince, we find the poet Sophocles, in his tragedy of Triptolemus, praising the corn of Italy before all others. The passage, translated word for word, is to the following effect. And favoured Italy grows white with hoary wheat. And it is this whiteness that is still one of the peculiar merits of the Italian wheat, a circumstance which makes me the more surprised to find that none of the Greek writers of a later period have made any reference to it. Of the various kinds of wheat which are imported at the present day into Rome, the lightest in weight are those which come from Gaul and Chersonesus, for, upon weighing them, it will be found that they do not yield more than twenty pounds to the modius. The grain of Sardinia weighs half a pound more, and that of Alexandria one-third of a pound more than that of Sardinia. The Sicilian wheat is the same in weight as the Alexandrian. The Boeotian wheat, again, weighs a whole pound more than these last, and that of Africa a pound and three-quarters. In Italy, beyond the Padus, the spelt, to my knowledge, weighs twenty-five pounds to the modius, and in the vicinity of Clusium, six-and-twenty. We find it a rule, universally established by nature, that in every kind of commissariat bread that is made, the bread exceeds the weight of the grain by one-third. And in the same way, it is generally considered that that is the best kind of wheat which, in kneading, will absorb one congeus of water. There are some kinds of wheat which give, when used by themselves, an additional weight equal to this. The Balearic wheat, for instance, which to a modius of grain yields thirty-five pounds weight of bread. Others, again, will only give this additional weight by being mixed with other kinds, the Cyprian wheat and the Alexandrian, for example, which, if used by themselves, will yield no more than twenty pounds to the modius. The wheat of Cyprus is swarthy and produces a dark bread, for which reason it is generally mixed with the white wheat of Alexandria, the mixture yielding twenty-five pounds of bread to the modius of grain. The wheat of Thebes in Egypt, when made into bread, yields twenty-six pounds to the modius. To knead the meal with sea-water, as is mostly done in the maritime districts, for the purpose of saving the salt, is extremely pernicious. There is nothing, in fact, that will more readily predispose the human body to disease. In Gaul and Spain, where they make a drink by steeping corn in the way that has been already described, they employ the foam which thickens upon the surface as a leaven. Hence it is that the bread in those countries is lighter than that made elsewhere. There are some differences also in the stem of wheat, for the better the kind, the thicker it is. In Thrace, the stem of the wheat is covered with several coats, which are rendered absolutely necessary by the excessive cold of those regions. It is the cold also that led to the discovery there of the three months' wheat, the ground being covered with snow most of the year. At the end mostly of three months after it has been sown, this wheat is ready for cutting, both in Thrace and in other parts of the world as well. This variety is well known, too, throughout all the Alpine range, and in the northern provinces there is no kind of wheat that is more prolific. It has a single stem only, 
is by no means of large size in any part of it, and is never sown but in a thin, light soil. There is a two-month wheat also, found in the vicinity of Enos in Thrace, which ripens the fortieth day after sowing, and yet it is a surprising fact that there is no kind of wheat that weighs heavier than this, while at the same time it produces no bran. Both Sicily and Achaia grow it, in the mountainous districts of those countries, as also Eubea in the vicinity of Charistus. So greatly, then, is Columella in error in supposing that there is no distinct variety of three-month wheat even, the fact being that these varieties have been known from the very earliest times. The Greeks give to these wheats the name of Cetanion. It is said that in Bactria the grains of wheat are of such an enormous size that a single one is as large as our ears of corn. Chapter 13. Barley Rice Of all the cereals, the first that is sown is barley. We shall state the appropriate time for sowing each kind when we come to treat of the nature of each individually. In India, there is both a cultivated and a wild barley, from which they make excellent bread, as well as alica. But the most favorite food of all there is rice, from which they prepare a tisson similar to that made from barley in other parts of the world. The leaves of rice are fleshy, very like those of the leek, but broader. The stem is a cubit in height, the blossom purple, and the root globular, like a pearl in shape. Chapter 14. Polenta Barley is one of the most ancient elements of men, a fact that is proven by a custom of the Athenians, mentioned by Menander, as also by the name of Hordearii, that used to be given to gladiators. The Greeks, too, prefer barley to anything else for making polenta. This food is made in various ways. In Greece, the barley is first steeped in water, and then left a night to dry. The next day, they parch it, and then grind it in the mill. Some persons parch it more highly, and then sprinkle it again with a little water, after which they dry it for grinding. Others shake the grain from out of the ear while green, and after cleaning and soaking it in water, pound it in a mortar. They then wash the paste in baskets, and leave it to dry in the sun, after which they pound it again, clean it, and grind it in the mill. But whatever the mode of preparation adopted, the proportions are always twenty pounds of barley to three pounds of linseed, half a pound of coriander, and fifteen drachmae of salt. The ingredients are first parched and then ground in the mill. Those who want it for keeping store it in new earthen vessels, with fine flour and bran. In Italy, the barley is parched without being steeped in water, and then ground to a fine meal, with the addition of the ingredients already mentioned, and some millet as well. Barley bread, which was extensively used by the ancients, has now fallen into universal disrepute, and is mostly used as a food for cattle only. Chapter 15. Tisson. With barley, too, the food called tisson is made, a most substantial and salutary element, and one that is held in very high esteem. Hippocrates, one of the most famous writers on medical science, has devoted a whole volume to the praises of this element. The tisan of the highest quality is that which is made at Utica. That of Egypt is prepared from a kind of barley, the grain of which grows with two points. In Bedica and Africa, the kind of barley from which this food is made is that which Terranius calls the smooth barley. 
the same author expresses an opinion too that olera and rice are the same the method of preparing tisan is universally known chapter sixteen trogum in a similar manner too trogum is prepared from seed wheat but only in campania and egypt chapter seventeen amilum amilum is prepared from every kind of wheat and from winter wheat as well but the best of all is that made from three-month wheat the invention of it we owe to the island of caius and still at the present day the most esteemed kind comes from there it derives its name from its being made without the help of the mill next to the amilum made with three-month wheat is that which is prepared from the lighter kinds of wheat in making it the grain is soaked in fresh water placed in wooden vessels care being taken to keep it covered with the liquid which is changed no less than five times in the course of the day if it can be changed at night as well it is all the better for it the object being to let it imbibe the water gradually and equally when it is quite soft but before it turns sour it is passed through linen cloth or else wicker work after which it is poured out upon a tile covered with leaven and left to harden in the sun next to the amilum of caius that of crete is the most esteemed and next to that the egyptian the tests of its goodness are its being light and smooth it should be used too while it is fresh cato among our writers has made mention of it end of section nineteen